So today, uh, we will be wrapping up uh, our six-week series on the attributes of God. We've looked, if you remember, we've looked at the holiness of God. We've looked at the knowledge of God. We've looked at the sovereignty of God, the wrath of God. Last week, we looked at the grace of God. And this morning, we will be looking at the love of God. The first step toward better knowing and better understanding who God is and what he is like is better knowing and understanding his eternal attributes, his characteristics, his traits, the things that make him up as revealed to us in scripture. And as Christians, we we want to know and we want to understand to the best of our ability this wonderful creator God that we serve. And so I hope that our ser- series has helped us toward that end. Uh, the love of God above and beyond all others is the attribute of God that everyone wants to talk about, right? So we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Even, even Hollywood is okay discussing the love of God, Right? We see it in every, in every crowd of every NFL football game. There's always that guy with the sign, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. We see it on bumper stickers and on billboards and t-shirts. We, we, we see it and we hear it at social justice rallies and, and gay pride parades and political forums. We hear these words, God is love. God is love and it's true though it not always in the exact sense that we're, we're thinking. See, only three times in Scripture are the words, God is something, period. Only three times in Scripture are those words mentioned. God is light. God is spirit. God is love. And so we've got to understand that the love of God is, is more than simply an attribute of God. Because see, since before the earth was formed, in the very core of God's being, he has forever been, in essence, love. Now, if God were a single, solitary being, this would not be possible for God to be love. As writer Jared Wilson writes, a solitary God cannot be love. He may learn to love, he may yearn for love, but he cannot in himself be love because love requires an object, an object to be loved. So this is why many people wrongly assert that God created the world and everything in it because he needed someone to love wrong. This would mean that God is, in a sense, dependent upon us in order to fully express himself. He is dependent on no one but himself. He did not create us out of need or out of lack or out of compulsion. He created us to share in and reflect the love that he was already fully expressing within himself. And this is where we come to the fact that only Orthodox Christianity, that is us in this room, only Orthodox Christianity, only within that system 
if you will, is it possible to say that since before the foundation of the world, our eternal and unchanging God has been and will forever be love because of the Trinity? Because of the Trinity. Because of the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, because of these three persons, the love of God has always had an object. In utter completion and wholeness and fullness, the Father has forever loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son has forever loved the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has forever loved the Father and the Son because God is love. This means that He wasn't compelled to create us so much sweeter. He chose to. He wanted to create us. And being created in the likeness of God who is love, explains why primal within our very nature is the desire to be loved and to love. It is within our very DNA. We cannot escape the need, the desire, the craving to love and be loved because we have been created in the image of a triune God who is always and forever loving. In 2014, Google reported that the most searched question in the entire world is what is love? It's intrinsic. No matter what culture or thought system or political party we are a part of, no matter what tribe, tongue, or nation, love has been built into our DNA. And so I know we did just a little tiny bit of some heady Trinitarian theology there for a second, but it's, it, it's super important that we understand the very basis of God is love within and of himself. And so as we then now reflect on that attribute, let's, let's read, with, with those thoughts in our mind, let's read through Psalm 36, this Psalm of David, starting in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light 
do we see light? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? What a miracle of love it is that, God, you desire to speak to us. And that you have so desired to speak to us uh, an infallible, trustworthy, inspired word that over the course of thousands of years in multiple languages and across cultures and countries, you through the pens of men, wrote your Bible, your scripture. Help us to trust in this moment that what we've just read is the word and are the very words of God written for us to reprove and rebuke and encourage and exhort and to train us and to equip us with everything that is good for living a godly life. So help us to feast upon these words to drink these words and to be changed by your Holy Spirit and the truth that we receive today in Jesus' name, amen. So I've always loved the title of Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And I've only ever loved the title because I've not read it. (laughs) So I I need to read it. But if, if today's sermon we're able to have a subtitle, right? So the title of my sermon is The Love of God. If there were to be a subtitle, it would be this, A Tale of Two Loves. Because that is what we see in Psalm 36, the juxtaposition. We see the contrast between two loves. We see the contrast between the self-love of man in verses one through four. And we see the divine love of God on display in verses 5 through 9. Those are my points, team. Two points this morning. Number one, the self-love of man. Number two, the divine love of God. Today's passage illustrates for us that when our deepest affections are pointed in the wrong direction toward ourself, the results are catastrophic. Darkness and sin and death. But when our deepest affections are pointed in the right direction, the way that we were designed to have them point, like God, pointed outward toward God, the results are light and life. And light and life is available to us this morning. So if you're here and you find yourself enslaved to to darkened patterns of behavior. If you find yourself, if you've been a Christian for years and you look back upon your life and you realize that you are still, still wrestling with the same exact things, unable to break free. Now, I'm not talking about complete and total victory over all sin. 
But if we are wrestling within the species of sin that we usually wrestle with, with the same exact patterns year after year, maybe you are a compulsive liar or an habitual gossip. Maybe you are lazy or an overdrinker or overeater. Maybe you burn year after year after year with impure sexual desire. Maybe you're greedy or overconcerned with your own comfort and convenience, neglecting the widow and the orphan and the marginalized, neglecting mission. Maybe you've been hurt and you've allowed a root of bitterness to grow in your heart and it has hardened you into an angry unforgiveness. You and I need to understand this morning that our primary problem is not sin. It is love. Primarily speaking, you and I do not have a sin problem. We have a love problem that is resulting in sin and leading us to death. See, our love, our deepest affections are pointed in the wrong direction, inwardly, toward ourselves. And it's, it's a, a miraculous reorientation of that love by God's grace that can this morning in you and in I and everyone here, it can this morning produce light and life. Hallelujah. Number one, the self-love of man. Because we were created in the image of the triune God, who from each member of the Trinity to the others is constantly honoring and constantly worshiping and constantly loving. That is the Trinity, constantly worshiping and loving and honoring each other member of the Trinity. Because we were created in that image, you guys, we too are constantly honoring and loving and worshiping someone or something. We were not created to love We were created loving, active, present tense. We weren't created to maybe worship someday. We were created worshiping, active, present tense. We are always loving, always honoring, and always worshiping someone or something. Always, 24-7. We've convinced ourselves that, that, that our worship takes place for 35 minutes on Sundays. We've somehow compartmentalized that, well, that's when we worship. But in reality, I'm going to put it in the double negative, we are never not worshiping, ever. We are never not loving someone or something with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we truly want to know whom or what it is that we honor and worship and love, we don't have to look any further than that which most consumes our time and resources and affections. What we spend our time planning and pondering and executing day to day, that is our God. What we spend our time daydreaming about, that is our true God. And when we get down to the very bottom of it, our true God will either be God or self. 
We will either honor and worship and love our creator as we were designed to, or we will rebel against that created purpose, thereby honoring and worshiping and loving ourselves as gods. See, it doesn't matter what specific thing it is. It could be golf that I give all of my time to. But because I've taken the crown of my attention off of God and put it on golf, I have made myself God to determine that in the process. We either worship God or self. All sin, I mean every single sin, all unrighteousness, all unholiness, all wickedness, finds its root in loving self over loving God. Think about it. Lucifer, the fallen angel that we now refer to as Satan, loving self over loving God. Adam and Eve, Cain, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Ananias and Sapphira, Judas Iscariot, all sin ultimately finds its root in our idolatrous love of self. And yet, this is the narrative that we hear every day from the world. Is it not? Love thyself. The whisper of the serpent is alive and well on the radio and on television and on the billboards. You only live once. YOLO. You do you. Love yourself. Embrace yourself. Embolden yourself. I'm not talking about having no esteem. I'm talking about finding it in the right place. I think I was the last of the millennial generation to not be given a trophy after everything that I've ever done. I missed out. But if we look at the narrative of our culture... Man, every child gets the ribbon. Everyone gets the trophy. Everyone gets the reward because, man, everyone, ultimately, this is the story, is God. You matter the most over anything. And look at where that narrative is landing us. I mean, we had another shooting this week. Man, the love of self takes us ultimately to extremes. We see in verse 2, this man that David describes flatters himself in his own eyes. Instead of having his eyes opened and lifted in worship, they are closed in conceit. I love the New Living Translation of this. It translates it as, this man is blinded with conceit, reveling in self-glory, self-worship, and self-love. The first fruit of our self-love is blindedness. We're blind. This is one of the primary pinnacle reasons why here at Substance we pursue community relationships in community because I am so blind I need to give people in my community group active permission to call me out and to take my blinders off because my sin will lead me to death who have you given active enabling permission call me out brother because I want to love God above everything else not myself so call me out when you see species of self love who have you given permission to do that in your life? 
Who has given you permission to do that to them and you're actively doing it? Man, I tell you what, substance would be among the healthiest bodies of believers on the planet if we did this. Because the first fruit of our self-love is blindness, as we see in verse 2. And then this blindness, it, this man that, that David is describing, in his blindness, he then deceives himself. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He becomes his own PR department, convincing himself and his friends that his immorality isn't so immoral after all. Just like the serpent convinced Eve in the garden. Did God really say, Eve, that you can't eat from that tree? Oh, it's just a, it's just a little taste. In the blindness of our self-love, we are forced to excuse the sinful results that rise to the surface. Think of, think of abortion in our country. In self-love, the world has convinced itself that an un unborn baby does not equate to life. They genuinely believe that story. That's not life. We've deceived ourselves. The blindness of self-love leads to this deception. And as we see in this Psalm 36, self-deception finds its end in self-consumption. See, not only does this man of verses 1 through 4, does he, not only does he cease to act wisely and do good, but look, look at verse 4. Day and night, even when he should be sleeping, he plots and plans and schemes. He is consumed like Gollum with the ring, consumed by self surrendered over in worship and adoration of self. Verse 1, I love the New Living Translation of this. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. And the result is that they have no fear of God at all. See, it's in this position where sin has consumed the heart and the fear of God has been removed. It's in this position that the love of God has been so grossly mutilated. It's here that the world, having no fear of God, still wants to uphold the love of God, but detaching it from his holiness and his justness and his wrath. God is love, the world believes. He's not holy. He's not wrathful against sin. He's not a judge. And the definition that the world then adopts of the love of God, it, God becomes the great excuser of our immorality. Is that not the definition that the world operates by? The love of God gives me license to do as I please. Those who are utterly consumed with self-love become so blind and so deceived that they no longer revere God and gradually they are no longer to, able to see him or sense him or acknowledge him because in their unrighteousness they have suppressed, they've cut off the truth of him. They've done away with it. 
I rarely do this, but would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is an explanation, a New Testament explanation of what we are reading about in the Old Testament. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, oh no, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled consumed with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is where the self-love of man ultimately has landed us. In verse 12, David continues, there, it's in that place that the evildoers lie fallen. They're thrust down. Do you see this next word? They are unable to rise. But praise God, that is not the end of today's passage. And having, you know, we're 28-ish minutes in, it feels a lot like the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, where it's all the pursuit. Like, this is all just bad news, but thank God there's good news. Number two, the divine love of God. See, in contrast with the inward love of self, the love of God, because it is Trinitarian, is outward in nature. The Father is not self-consumed, but rather he honors and serves the other members of the Trinity as do the other members of the Trinity. And here's a definition now of God's divine love. God's love is a pure affection in which his goodness is mobilized into self-giving action. God's love is a pure affection in which his goodness is mobilized into self-giving giving action. Praise God that not only is this love steadfast 
as we read in today's passage. It's eternal, abiding, it's, it's wholehearted, it never ends. But as we see in verse 5, it extends into all of undeserving creation. From the ground level, what does he say? Up to, to the heavens. God's love is faithful even to the clouds. This is clearly why the psalmist, I mean the psalms are praise songs, they're prayers. Why, why the psalmist David declares in verse 7, how precious, how priceless is your steadfast love, O God, that fills a creation that has rebelled against you. And like baby birds hide from a dreadful storm under the wings of their mother, David writes, so the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of God's loving wings. Look at this love of God in, in, in verse 8 that beckons us. It beck, though we have rebelled against him, it beckons, it invites to come and to feast to drink from his generous provisions. I think of the woman at the well. Her soul was parched by the dissatisfaction of self-love and Jesus comes up to her not in condemnation as he was rightful to do, but what does he do? He offers to her a drink from the water of true satisfaction, from the fountain of life. We see that very language, this fountain of life in verse 8 or 9. For, for with the Creator God, there, verse 9, for with you, verse 9, is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. The mercy of God's love, this goodness that is mobilized into self-giving action, is that it is by His Light, his loving light that we are even able to see because we've been so blinded by self-love. God illumines our hearts. He regenerates us from within and giving us eyes to see, wow, we've had blinders on. We have all sinned and all fallen short of God's righteous standard. And it's in light of this undeserved love that we ought to relish in it. And that's what the psalmist does Verse 5, he relishes. He says it extends to the heavens. Verse 6, it saves man and beast. Verse 7, it covers the children of mankind. Verse 8, it provides and it satisfies. Verse 9, it gives new life. Now we can continue like the world to treat the love of God as a license, but it is blinding us further numbing our senses. It is suppressing the very truth of God or we can embrace the love of God as he desires to. It is a rescuing shelter under, with, under which, that like a shadow of his wings, we can come under and seek forgiving refuge. We can continue with the definition that the world employs of the love of God for license or we can remember in verse 6, that his righteousness is intact with his love. His love does not operate alone. He still employs his righteousness. His judgments, verse 6, like the deepest sea, God's love is in no way detached from his holiness and his wrath. 
And so here is the miraculous crossroads of how all of this comes together. How can, this is the million dollar question, how can a God who is holy, who cannot associate with unholy, unrighteous sinners, how can a God who is wrath, who will punish sin, how can a God who is just, who will no by, by no means clear the guilty, how can that God still extend love into his creation, into each one of us here this morning? We see this in Ephesians 2. How can he extend this love to sinful creatures like you and I who, like the rest of the world we read in Ephesians 2, were dead in the trespasses and sins that we once walked in, following the course of this disobedient world among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh? We all were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And it says we were by nature children deserving of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in the sins of our self-loving trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is the love of God. Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, God looked down upon us, completely would have been justified in bringing eternal punishment, and he sent Christ, the very token of his love, to come and to become the very sins that we read about in Romans 1, to become the sins that we read about in Ephesians 2 and to die on the cross that we rightly deserve for those sins. Greater love knows no one than this, that Christ laid down his life for us in this way, the pinnacle of God's love as demonstrated on the cross. David ends in verse 10 by saying, Oh Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. In response to the redeeming sacrificial love with which God saves us, David prays this prayer and it really encompasses three different prayers that God would continue pouring out his steadfast love upon David and us because as we read in our call to worship, Psalm 63, God's love is better than life itself. The, 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 the second prayer that's tucked in there is that God would deliver David from the wickedness of the world's self-love. As, as John writes, little children, keep yourselves in the love of God. Lastly, tucked into this prayer, David beckons the Lord that, that, that God would deliver David from the arrogance of his own self-love, which is the only thing powerful enough to rescue us. The love of God rescuing us from our self-love. 
Let me close with this thought that uh, A.W. Pink wrote. How little real love there is from us for God. One chief reason is because our hearts are so little occupied with his wondrous love for his people. The better we are acquainted with his love, the character of his love, the fullness, the blessedness, the more will our hearts be drawn out in love to him. Rather than that inward self-love drawn out in the outward expression of love to God. God is love indeed. And my prayer for each one of us this morning is that our hearts would be illuminated to the, to the true goodness of his love, that we would stop misdefining it in the way that the world does, that we would acknowledge our sin by the light of his light shining on it, that we would acknowledge that we would repent and that we would receive the loving forgiveness that he promises to unleash upon us. That's my prayer. Would you pray with me as we close? God is love indeed. We thank you for this, Lord. I pray that somehow in this mess of words that I've just thrown out, that you, God, would, that you would savor the moments of Scripture in our hearts. Any nuggets of truth, Lord, that were, that were presented today, Lord, that you would help us to grasp them, to understand them, and that all of our life would be lived in response to the glorious love that, that we see as demonstrated in Christ coming to save the undeserving. And I pray, Lord, for any here who have not already, that they might place their faith and trust and love in you today as we savor your love.